Well, I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, the book of Acts. And as you know, uh, we are working our way through the book of Acts. Now, something a little different is happening this morning. Uh, we are going to be reading a longer section. And so I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, get your Bible, have it open, follow along there. The, the words will be up on the screen. Um, you can read there. Uh, Debbie is going to come, and she's going to read for us this morning. Um, but try and capture what is going on in this longer section where Paul is in Jerusalem, and he's going to go through a number of things. And uh, pray for me that uh, I can keep the sermon concise uh, because it's a long section, but uh, God will accomplish his purposes this morning. So, Debbie, would you come? Let's stand together as we read Acts chapter 21, verse 27 through 23, verse 11. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, two of them in the temple, whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then? who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing him in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, 
And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their clothes and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of, a, of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn into pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Thank you. Lord, we are humbled by your word. And Lord, we're humbled by the example of even your servant in this text. Lord, the Apostle Paul, your apostle to the Gentiles, um, being faithful even in the face of all that he's going through, Lord. This morning as we come to this text, as we seek to glean from this text, Lord, may we, our hearts be humble, may we be teachable. Lord, what we, what we are not, Lord, would you make us. What we have not, Lord, would you give us. And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us. And allow me, Lord, simply to be the vehicle through which you are working this morning to bring your word to bear in our hearts and that you would be glorified and that your people would be strengthened, Lord, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The book of Acts not only tells us the things that the Apostle Paul has done. It also reveals to us much about the character of Paul, in particular, his heart. And especially these last few chapters, chapter 20 and 21. In chapter 20, if you remember, we saw the shepherd's heart on display as he interacts with the Ephesian elders. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 17, we saw his humble heart as people told him, don't go to Jerusalem. Even as there was a, a prophecy about the things that would happen, his attitude was basically not my will, but the Lord's be done. In the next section, 21, 18 through 26, we saw last week his missionary heart. And today, in this longer section, we see Paul's courageous heart. His heart is courageous before rioting crowds and Roman soldiers and its leadership and before a gathered Jewish council. And this passage ends with this wonderful verse. Acts 23, verse 11. A, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Now this is not the first time that the Lord had come and spoken to Paul and encouraged him with what he was doing. Paul was a courageous man for the Lord. He served faithfully, know that, simply by the stories and the events that took place and that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. But it is Christ who comes to stand by Paul to encourage him to press on. And friends, just like Christ does with Paul, so he does with us. He seeks to encourage us, to strengthen us, to run the race, with all of its obstacles, in his strength, and to finish for his glory. 
And so this morning, I would like to suggest to you that what we have in this passage is a call for every Christian to live courageously for the Lord. And that means living courageously no matter the circumstances. No matter the trial you're going through, the people that are maybe uh, speaking to you or you're interacting with, or maybe the hardship that you're suffering with because of disease and struggle, we're called to be courageous for the Lord. And our courage isn't something we drum up in ourselves. Our courage, our strength comes from the Lord, just like Paul's did. Now, we're not necessarily going to work our way through this passage section by section. We're going to approach it a little bit more thematically. But it's worth just noting the general structure of this long section that Luke gives us about Paul's time in Jerusalem. So what we have here are three scenes that emerge out of this text. The first one happens as Paul is finished in the temple. And we find there the accusations against Paul and the mob rising up, trying to kill him. And then the second section is Paul in the barracks. He's under the care of the tribune. And there's some interaction that takes place there. He certainly makes his defense before the people on the steps of the barracks. But there's, there's this question about his identity and what's really going on. And then we move from that second section to the third section. We're not exactly sure where this is taking place, but the tribune has commanded the council to gather because he wants to know who this Paul is and what the problem is with him. So we have these three different scenes before us where things are happening together. And what we have here are some intertwining themes, several themes weaving together like intertwining threads in our text that reveal to us the nature of Paul's courageous heart. And Luke is revealing them to us, not just to show us what God is doing through Paul, but to encourage every believer who's reading this account to live their lives courageously for the Lord. We can learn a lot about courage by, 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 by seeing how a servant of the Lord seeks to honor the Lord in the midst of his trial and suffering. Now, friends, courage has the idea of boldness and confidence in the face of danger, opposition, and struggle. And Paul knew that he was going to face trouble in Jerusalem because he was told that he was going to face it. And not only that, he was willing to face that trouble, even if it meant his death. But what is Christ calling you to? He's calling you to be a husband. Are you going to be a courageous husband? He's calling you to be a wife. Then be a courageous wife. He's calling you to be a father. Be a courageous father. To be a student. Be a courageous student. As an employee. Maybe in a business that, that has ungodliness all over on display. He's calling you to live courageously in that context to be bold, and to be confident with your faith in such a way that you will communicate to those around you your love for the Lord, who you are, what's driving your life. 
So it's a call for every Christian, no matter what your role is, what your function is in the kingdom, to be courageous for the Lord. So we want to see these three intertwining themes this morning. When, t- when taken together, give us a fuller picture of Paul's courage as he enters into Jerusalem to minister the gospel. Let's look at the first theme, courage in the face of suffering. And here we come face to face with suffering and opposition. And this primarily comes from the Jews. And we've seen this over and over again, but it, it just it continues here in Jerusalem, right? He, he knew he was going to suffer in Jerusalem, and, and as soon as he leaves the temple, he starts to face now this suffering. In fact, this section of Scripture is called Paul's Passion. Now, you've heard about the passion of the Christ, the story of Christ's suffering before he goes to the cross. What we have here is Paul's passion. And what's interesting is there's a lot of similarities to what's happening with Paul, to what happened with Christ. You'll see that as we work our way through this greater text. First of all, there's a rioting mob. This isn't the first section. They come at Paul with a false accusation, saying that he's guilty of turning the people against his own Jewish people, against the law and against the temple. If you remember last week, we highlighted this saying, ultimately what they were saying was that he was an anti-Semite. He was a racist. Second, believing that false accusation, the Jews form a mob and he is dragged through the streets, physically beaten, and almost murdered by the rioting mob. And each time the mob speaks, they say, away with him. He doesn't deserve to live. We find that in chapter 21, verse 36, and then later after his defense in chapter 22, verse 22. And if it were not for the Roman soldiers coming in and rescuing him, he would likely be dead. So there's a rioting mob. Secondly, in the, the second section, there's this questioning tribune. The tribune Lysias, we find his name in Acts 24, 22. He doesn't understand what is going on and why. So he turns to the old tried and tested mechanism of gathering information, namely torture, right? So he has orders out to put Paul on the rack, so to speak, and to get ready for a flogging. Now, a flogging was a gruesome form of torture and punishment, where whips of leather cord that were intertwined with bone and metal would be dragged over the body, not only whipped, but dragged over the body, ripping the flesh off the body and off the bone. Does it remind you anyone? It was a common practice. Now, it seems a very strange way to behave, doesn't it? A mob is trying to rip you apart, and so your rescuer, trying to understand what's going on, decides he's going to rip you apart to gather information. That's quite the rescue. Yeah, save me from the mob and put me on the rack so that you can scourge me. Doesn't quite make sense to us, does it? But he's stretched out. He's ready now to suffer. And, of course, he speaks up and says, I'm a Roman citizen. Of course, that stops everything. But, but look, even, even the trauma of being laid out and seeing the whips would be, for us, enough to cause us to faint. So we have the, the mob, we have this questioning tribune. We also have the insult that comes from the high priest. 
as he's there in this third section interacting with the high priest, speaking of his clear conscience, that high priest, Ananias, orders the men around him to punch Paul in the face. Now, let's just say it was a rough few days of suffering and struggle for Paul. Would you agree with that? It's not the kind of few days that you would say, hey, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's see what happens. Yeah, this is not what you want to happen. And friends, it's uncanny how similar Paul's experience is to that of Jesus. Jesus had to endure murderous crowds yelling, away with him, away with him. Jesus had to endure flogging by Roman soldiers. Jesus was beaten in the face before the Jewish council. Matthew 26, verses 66 and following says this, What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. I remember probably one of the first times I really kind of came face to face with the intensity of suffering not here in the States, but it was my first time ever uh, going to Russia and teaching. And my translator, her name was Natasha, and she was like 19 years old, um, a, a relatively new believer on fire for the Lord, wanted to be involved in the church, and she was there as my interpreter doing a great job. And, and uh, I interacted with the, the pastor, his name was Alexander, and his wife Galena, and he was telling me that she was really having a difficult time at home because her parents did not like the fact that she had become a Christian. And there were times that she would go home and her parents would physically beat her and emotionally abuse her. And that her and or he and his, and his wife would have to counsel her during those times. And it just, it was remind, a reminder to me that I had not seen that before personally. I had not been around someone who went through that kind of suffering simply because they had become a follower of Christ. It was good for me to see that. It was good for me to experience it. Not that I rejoice in her suffering, but she was an example in that sense. And friends, it's a, this passage is a reminder for us that persecution and suffering are part of the reality of being a follower of Christ. A persecution that we here in the West don't have to endure to the same level of Christ, the Apostle Paul, or many saints across this globe. But it does rise up in subtle ways, doesn't it? Shaming, canceling, mocking in the social arena. Ridicule, being demeaned, undermined in the educational arena. Misrepresented, mischaracterized in the political arena. Rejected as hateful, and colonial in the religious arena. You could go on. The, the ways that we're twisted and forced, so to speak, into this box that is not a true reflection of who we are. And, and it causes then a certain kind of attitude and suffering and perception that people have about us as Christians. So when you face any kind of suffering, find your strength by looking to Christ, to Paul, and to the many Christians who have gone before you Look to those Christians in places around the world that are suffering much greater hardship. But also, friends, also see your suffering in light of the bigger picture. The bigger picture of what Christ is accomplishing through you. And whether that is a serious kind of suffering we see in Paul and Jesus and others, or whether it's the more subtle kind of suffering 
that we are experiencing, recognize that God calls us to suffer. And we should have courage and take courage when that happens. You don't know when it's going to happen. And we, like I said, we probably don't experience it at the same level as other people, but it might just be around the corner. And are you ready for it? It actually might happen in your home. Are you ready for it? Secondly, courage in the face of ignorance. Courage in the face of ignorance. Now here, I don't mean ignorance to mean that the people in this, uh, this story are stupid. What I mean by ignorance is that they're blinded to the reality of who Paul is and what Paul is about. See, after Lysias sends his soldiers to stop the mob and rescue Paul, he naturally wants to know two things. You find that in chapter 21, verse 33 and 34. Who is this man? Secondly, why is the crowd so much against him? I mean, why would they be so stirred up? What's the deal? What's the problem? And again, a little later, after Paul makes his defense speech and the crowd is riled up calling for his death, Lysias is more eager to find out who Paul is and why the crowd is calling for his death, knowing who Paul is and why the Jews want to kill him is driving this passage. Why would a guy go through so much suffering? What is it about him? Why is he hated so much? Now, there's something very familiar, again, with our text and what we find taking place with Jesus before Pilate, isn't there? In chapter 23 of Luke's gospel, you might want to turn there. When the Jewish council brings Jesus to Pilate, they accuse him, and here's what they say. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Well, two out of those three things are false, right? Verse 3 now, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Then we jump down to verse 13. Pilate still doesn't know what to do with him. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people after examining him before you. Um, Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I mean, this is interrogation, trying to figure out, here's the accusation, unfounded, 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 but they still want him dead. But they all, um, he says, oh, this is what he says, I will therefore punish and release him. That, That one's always kind of troubled him, right? Innocent, 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 innocent. So as a result of me finding him innocent, I'm going to punish him. He's just like, what's up with that, right? But they all cried out together, away with this man and release Barabbas. Get some of the same language we have happening here in this encounter with the Apostle Paul. Away with him. And when the tribute, uh, Claudius Lysias initially rescues Paul from the murderous Jewish mob, he is similarly perplexed 
And he assumes that Paul is the Egyptian who had recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Well, he's not the Egyptian, and he's not an assassin. And Paul is quick to correct him. And this is what he says. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And friends, throughout this section, we're being told who Paul is, aren't we? If you caught it, I'm not sure. But let me just remind you, as he is before Lysias now, he says, I'm a Jew. As he makes his defense, he begins by saying, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus, but educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. When stretched out for the whips, ready to be flogged, Paul reveals he's a Roman citizen. When standing before the Jewish council at the command of Lysias, Paul says, I am God's servant with a clear conscience. And Paul is introduced, uh, inducing the subject of the resurrection. He reveals that to the council that he is a Pharisee. See, Paul is trying to lay out for us something about who this person is. Paul's a Jew. Right? He's a Roman citizen. He's a faithful apostle. He is a Pharisee. But those around him don't see Paul for who he is. They see him as an enemy. They see him as someone who is against the Jews. Paul tells them who he is. Paul tells them also what he is doing and why. He says, I've been appointed by God to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, and to be a witness for everyone of what I have seen, and in particular, to take that message to the Gentiles. Now, friends, these are the unasked questions that are often in the minds and hearts of our unbelieving friends. They're thinking, who is that person really? What is really driving their heart? They say they're Christians, but is, is that all because they just feel guilty? Are they Christians because of the fear of man? Is it insecurity? Is it pride? Is it selfishness? And friends, a lot of the answers to those questions will be revealed by how we choose to live. They'll be revealed by how we endure trials and how we celebrate joys and, and how we treat people around us. So the question for us is, who are you really? What is your true identity? And if you're a Christian, as Paul says in his epistles, your identity is in Christ. And the next question is, what have you been called to do? What or who is driving your life? And if you're an obedient Christian, it is Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit through his word that is driving your life. So friends, Jesus came to this earth with a mission to go to the cross. Paul goes throughout the Mediterranean on a mission as the apostle to the Gentiles and you also have a mission God has called you to. Who are you? And what is driving your life? Who is driving your life? These are essential questions. 
And it takes courage then in the face of ignorance to communicate by your words and your actions who you are and why you do what you do. Courage in the face of suffering, courage in the face of ignorance, and now third, courage in the face of providence. And we're going to spend most of our time now on this third point. Now, if we come to this last theme, we want to see that although Paul knew he would endure suffering and affliction in Jerusalem, that that was all part of God's providence. But friends, it's one thing to know what you will have to face. It's another thing to actually walk the path of God's providence. You go to the dentist, and he says, I'm sorry to inform you that you're going to need a root canal. Now, let me show you some diagrams on the wall here of what's going to happen with the root canal. You see this root here? Yeah, yours is dead. So I have to pull this, this tooth out, and I've got I to dig, and I've got to scrape, and see all those little tendons and those nerves? I've got to scrape all that. He's giving you all this information. Yeah, I can gather the information, but the night before the actual appointment to have the root canal, I'm not sleeping. It's one thing to know about it, to anticipate it. It's another thing to hear, as you're trying to close your eyes and go to sleep. It's another thing to walk through that which has been explained to you. And see, in the same way, Paul knows he's going to face trouble in Jerusalem. He has no idea what it's going to look like specifically. He doesn't know how it's going to play out. But he has courage in the face of that. Now hear this. To finish the days of purification at the temple, if you remember from last time, when he went through that Nazarite vow to show that the Jewish believers that he hadn't abandoned Moses. So to go through that, those days of purification and, and make your way out of the temple only to be dragged and beaten by a crowd that wants him dead and then to be rescued by the tribune may not have been the plan that Paul was anticipating. In fact, he may have been thinking, okay, I went through this Nazarite vow and I'm walking out of the temple. Okay, I think everything's going to be settled now. It may have been settled for the Jewish Christians, but it wasn't settled for those that were unbelieving Jews. And I'm reminded again of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in anticipation of the suffering he would have to endure and submitting to the will of the Father. And here Paul enters Jerusalem with a similar vigor for the suffering he knew would be coming and with this last thread, the providence of God, I would like to pull out some practical encouragements that we can consider and we can apply to our lives that I think Paul is, is illustrating for us here. Encouragements that flow out of Paul's courageous example with the providence of God. First of all, don't be afraid to share your testimony. What does Paul do? After the riots break up, he's dragged through the streets and beaten by a mob who wants him dead. What does he do when he's rescued by the tribune and the soldiers? He wants to speak to the crowd. Most of us, if we're being chased by a mob for our lives, want to do what? 
get as far away as possible. What does Paul do? He says, can I speak? And Lysias allows him to speak. And to our surprise, what do we find? That when he begins to speak in that Hebrew dialect, the Jewish mob starts to listen to him. (laughs) What? I mean, this may not have been the strategy. Now, Paul, when you get done getting beaten and almost, you know, dying and we rescue you, that's the prime time for you to stand up and speak. I mean, I read it in a book somewhere, right? No, you can't orchestrate this. But he stands up to speak and he gives what is called his defense, right? It's a speech to vindicate himself. And there's really three parts to it. We're not going to go into great detail here. If we've studied through Acts, this is all there. We've been in this territory before. Just briefly, here's what he says. First of all, he establishes his credentials in verses 3 through 5, which include his birth, a Jew from Tarsus, his upbringing, he was in Jerusalem, his education, he was educated under Gamaliel, who was a great leader, his persecution, how he persecuted the way, it's in verses 4 and 5. These are his credentials. This would identify him with the crowd. But then he describes his conversion, verses 6 through 16, how the Lord met him with a great light from heaven while on the road to Damascus, asking the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that he was blinded. And as a result of that, he had to be led to Damascus where God had prepared a man by the name of Ananias to help him understand what was going on. And as a result, Paul called on the name of the Lord and he was saved. And in the third part, he announces his commission that the Lord was sending him far away to the Gentiles to witness his gospel. And then in verse 22, it begins by saying this. Up to this word, they listened to him. Up to what word? It's a word that begins with G. (laughs) The Gentiles. As soon as he mentioned that, the one that they were calling a racist, now get upset with him because he's taking the good news of the gospel that flows out of the Old Testament text to the Gentiles. Now, don't let that statement slide by. The very ones who have been dragging and beating him now are the ones who have been listening and paying attention and engage with what he's saying until they hear him say, the Gentiles. And we're finding in verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, and they're saying, away with such a man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. All this demonstration of offense, blasphemy. Now, friends, the Apostle Peter tells us something really important. He says in 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Paul made a defense. He didn't go after the people here. He just said, "This this is what's happened. And yet they are so upset because he's talking about the Gentiles. Now, friends, that admonition that Peter gives 
is primarily talking about our conversion. That is what Paul is modeling for us here. And we should always be ready to tell people our gospel story. That's why we want to help you to work on what that story might look like. You might say, well, my story's not very exciting. There's no earth-shattering events or activities surrounding my conversion. When I was in college, I had a friend, and we had, a, we had like a, a chapel that was our own, in our own society or fraternity. And he got up, and for like half an hour, he just talked about all these bad things that he did, these sinful behaviors, these sinful activities, all these sinful places he went, and how terrible he was, and how his you know, awful mouth and awful behavior. And after half an hour, he said, by the way, everything I've just said, I've made up. I grew up in a Christian home. I came to faith when I was six years old. All I remember is knowing Jesus and loving Jesus. And I love Jesus today. Now, see, sometimes we can be so, oh, look at that testimony. And, and testimonies are wonderful. And we hear what God does with people who have been in all sorts of different situations. But don't think that your testimony is insignificant because you don't think it has any earth-shattering event or story. Friends, the earth-shattering event is the fact that you are converted. The rest of it is peripheral. It's helpful. It's a means by which we connect with people and we understand how God has been working his providence. But the thing that we all have in common is that we are converted. We've been moved from, from darkness into light. We were slaves, and now we're welcomed into the family of God. We were enemies, and now we're friends. That's earth-shattering, friends. So don't be afraid to tell your story. And don't be afraid that it's going to seem strange to people, or, or people are just not going to understand. They probably won't. This crowd didn't. <laughs> But it was all part of God's providence. And you know what? They may not bow the knee, but it will also make them that much more accountable. And just Look, if someone hears your testimony and they'll walk away and say, I don't want anything more. It's more, it's more accountability that they're, that's heaped on them for not hearing and heeding to the gospel. So don't think so much about how different and dull your testimony is. Do think about how similar, radical, and life-changing your conversion was. And how Christ is now the one who's driving your life. That he is your Lord and Master. That he speaks and directs your life by his Spirit through his word. Friends, that's your story. That's my story. That's the story of every true Christian you will ever encounter. Now, your testimony is not just about your conversion, though, but also about your convictions. And honestly, this might be the most common way that you will have opportunities to give evidence to your faith because it is Christ, through his word, that establishes your convictions. So when your friends or coworkers or neighbors ask you questions about your life choices, you have a window of opportunity to present Christ. So, for example, people may say, why do you go to church on Sunday? I don't want to talk about it. I'm just going to run away. No. It's an opportunity 
to testify as to who and what is driving your life. I go to church where I can worship the Lord with other people who are worshipers gathering to give praise and glory to the one who created this world, who sent Jesus Christ. It's a simple question, but it's a packed opportunity. Or why is it that everyone in this office is always using swear words, but I never hear any from you? Well, I want my speech to glorify my Lord. I don't want to be found guilty of using corrupt communication in that sense. I want to, I want to honor him with my, with my lips. Again, opportunity to testify of what's driving your life. Or how about this one? Why is it that you choose to homeschool your children rather than put them in the public school like the rest of us? Weirdo. You ever feel that way? Ever have that conversation? Well, it's because I take parenting seriously. That I have a responsibility before God to show my kids the way of the Lord and to teach them the, about the world that is from a biblical perspective, from what I would consider to be a right, godly perspective. And whether it's a public school, whether it's homeschool, whether it's Christian school, I'm the one who is responsible as a parent. It's my responsibility. It's not the state's responsibility. And so this is what I choose to do because this is the best way I can do it. Or how about this one? Why do you give so much money to the church? Wouldn't it be more beneficial to use that money to pay down your credit cards? And all of you are saying, yeah, I thought about that. That was that's a good idea. Well, the reality is, friends, your, your giving to the church is, is a commitment born out of your conviction. God calls all of us to give as God has prospered and to do so with joy and to make it so much a part of your giving that it, you don't even think about it anymore. It's like whatever comes in, here's the amount that I'm taking out percentage-wise. I'm just giving it. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it because I've structured my world based on this, and I'm able to do it for his glory. My credit cards will, will take care of themselves if I still apply biblical truth and wisdom and stewardship? Or how about this one? Why is it you don't want your children to watch that movie that's all the rage? There's, there's freedom here, but you may have some convictions that are rooted in Christ or the Word of God. And you're like, you know what? There's too much violence in this. There's a nuance of, I don't know, some worldly thinking that's there. I don't want my children to have to be exposed to that and so I'm choosing not to do that. Well, everyone else is, and they're getting all the books, and they're getting all the toys. And you were like, yeah, I just don't think that's what I want for my kids. And here's the reason why. Again, these are all opportunities to have gospel stories that are pointing now to what's driving your life. Now, here's another one. Why are you staying in this marriage when you're so miserable? because I stood in front of that person at a wedding before God and before people, and I said, I do, or I will. And I committed myself to this person in good times, in bad. And I'm doing this for the Lord, and the Lord hasn't given me liberty to move away from that. 
What, what is all this communicating? It's communicating who you are, that you're a child of God, and that you are driven by him as your Lord. Don't be afraid to proclaim your testimony. It's the story of your conversion. It's the story of your convictions. Trust that God will work through lovingly, gently, humbly, carefully sharing that story. Secondly, don't be afraid to appeal for your rights. Now, when Paul was done speaking, the Jewish mob turned on him saying, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Of course, Lysias sends the soldiers, rescues him again back into the barracks, and he begins preparing for this torture to exact from him uh, exactly the answers to the questions that he has about who he is and what is driving him. And as Paul is being stretched out to be whipped or flogged, Paul appeals for his rights as a Roman citizen. It's, it's, like, it's like a trump card he pulls out. You know, by the way, just want you to know this. See this? I'm a Roman citizen. Now, some of, some of us here think, well, isn't that what it means to be American? Right? I mean, we go across the world. It's like, well, I'm from America. You know, and the world's like, but somehow we think, you know, we, we kind of walk all over foreigners because we're Americans. I think people in other countries actually feel that way about us. But honestly, Paul is, is leaning on something that was right for him to lean on. And just think about this. We might not understand the importance of citizen rights in Paul's Roman culture, but there were basically three groups of people. There were the slaves who, for the most part, had no rights at all. There were the subjects. Those were the people groups in the arenas or areas where there was Roman occupation. So you might want to say the Jews were the subjects. And then there were the Romans who had, who had their rules, their rights, things that couldn't happen to them, shouldn't happen to them, that could happen to anyone else in a moment. So when Paul identifies himself as a Roman citizen, both the centurion and the tribune are shocked and horrified. Why? Because it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen prior to allowing him a formal trial or sentencing. And they had laid him out. They had warned him with the flogs. You just imagine Paul saying, uh, <coughs> it's in the text there somewhere. I don't know how you spell it, but it's like, hey, um, before you do this, I want you to know I'm a Roman citizen. He pulls out that card. He plays that card. Now, some might say, why does Paul appeal to his rights? Doesn't he trust God? Doesn't he know he was going to suffer? Shouldn't he be more concerned about simply being willing to suffer for the Lord and just going along with it? Isn't it more spiritual to forget about human constructs and let God do his thing? Isn't it getting in the way of or getting ahead of God? Well, to do so is to ignore what Jesus and the apostles reveal in Scripture, that governments have been created for our good, and unless they contradict the clear teaching of Scripture, we should submit to them as God's ministers of justice, that's Romans 13, and seek to obey those laws. And that those laws and regulations are there to help and to protect 
its citizens, but he also expects governments to exercise their authority rightly and honorably. So friends, it is right for every citizen of a nation to turn to the laws of that nation for protection and for safety. Now friends, because of the gospel, our first citizenship is the kingdom of God, right? We are citizens of his kingdom, and that citizenship trumps every other earthly citizenship. But that doesn't mean you ignore your earthly citizenship and rights. Now, I'm kind of a strange person on a number of levels, but I am an American citizen who can freely hold a British passport as well as an Israeli passport. And at any moment, I could say, I want to be an Israeli citizen. I want to be a British citizen. I don't know that I can be all three, but I have the rights to do that. And I could pull that card if I was in a situation. And it wouldn't be wrong for me to do that. Why? Because those governments have established laws and regulations for my benefit. So if you're a citizen of the United States, you have rights by virtue of the Constitution as well as the many other laws established in our land. They are rights given to you by God through governments that he has established. And there are times when Christians should speak up, challenge offenses to the law and the court system, and exercise their rights as citizens. But you know what the world's going to do. If they know a little bit of Christianity, you know what they're going to do? They're going to say, I thought you were a Christian. And Christians aren't supposed to take people to court. You're not supposed to suit. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Well, Paul does condemn the Corinthian church for what appears to be a prevalent practice of lawsuits among believers using the course system to solve their differences rather than seeking biblical resolution. But he is not saying that Christians must never appeal to their rights as citizens. Those rights are part of God's care and protection for each of us. So we have to look carefully here. Paul did it. He's modeling for us there's a right place for us to do it. And that's why it's right for an organization such as the Alliance Defending Freedom to fight for and represent Christians whose rights have been violated. Whether you simply go on baking cakes for people that you choose to bake cakes for, whether your church remains open during a pandemic or you have freedom to teach your children at home or stand up to speak at a school board meeting, you have God-given rights and you should not be ashamed to sit down, or ashamed, I should say, to sit down and be quiet and you should not be ashamed to appeal to them when society is violating its own legal ethic. So, number two, don't be afraid to appeal for your rights. God works through that. It's not somehow irrelevant. The political arena is there. The legal arena is there. It's all tools that God is using to accomplish his purposes, and we should be free and feel free to use them rightly. And, and look, if you get into a car accident, guess what? You're using legal issues through your insurance to solve a problem. It's just part of our society. And sometimes that's just what you have to do. Third, don't be afraid to own your own sinfulness. Don't be afraid to own your own sinfulness. Have courage to own it when you, when you are sinful, right? And we see this certainly in Paul's interaction 
with the high priest at that Jewish council, right? Paul gives this, this kind of statement that says, look, I am a servant of the Lord with a clear conscience. And for some reason, Ananias is, is upset with him, and he calls on those around him to punch Paul in the face. And Paul responds understandably, doesn't he? Look at Acts 23 and verse 3. He says this, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, what, what is he saying here? What is, something, what is a whitewashed wall? It's an expression that's saying, you show yourself to be spiritual on the outside, but inside you're a dead man's bones. And he then follows that up by giving the evidence. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. You're saying, Paul, you've got to keep the law, but I don't have to. Hypocrite. What Paul is saying is that Ananias is a hypocrite. He presents himself as a man of integrity on the outside, but on the inside, he's full of sin. And that is evident by Ananias' behavior. Now, those around him then jump on Paul, not literally, but figuratively, and they say, would you revile God's high priest? While Paul spoke the truth, and while it was just, he did seem to regret speaking to the high priest in such a way. And I think his words reflect that. Verse 5, and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, there's some different views as to what has actually happened here. Some think that Paul is being sarcastic, and so he's continuing to kind of push the agenda. But I take Paul's confession here at face value, not as a form of sarcasm. This doesn't seem to be a normal Jewish council that has been gathered. It seems like it's kind of a, a sudden gathering that, that's taken place because Lysias is, is commanding them to gather and to deal with this issue of Paul. And so they're quickly gathering together. And so there's all these men and, 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 and Paul may not have the, the freedom and ability to see the, the religious garb because they probably don't have their, their pomp and circumstance with them. They're just coming to this gathering doesn't realize this person is the high priest. And as soon as he realizes, although what he has said is true, he regrets what he has said because it violates Exodus 22, 28, that says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You see, friends, we too should pursue a proper tone with ruling authorities as we address them. And I would say, even as we talk about them. You may not like certain ruling authorities. You may not like what they do. But how you speak about them may be sinful, friends. Now, when we are wrong, we should be quick to own our sinful behavior. Now, aren't you glad that God in his wisdom gives us kind of a raw situation like this? I mean, wouldn't you be tempted if you're being punched in the face unjustly to turn around and lash at the person who is there doing this or ordering it? I mean, you're a human, right? You got emotions, you got passions. 
We might be tempted to think to ourselves, if I admit that I was out of line with my words or actions, then people will have more fuel against me, so I better just dig my heels in and maintain my innocence. Ever thought that way? But friends, honestly, humility and confession of sinful behavior are God's way to build a bridge. If you don't believe me, just ask your spouse, ask your children, ask your friends. Don't be afraid to own your sinfulness, even your sinfulness in the public arena. You see, because a lot of unbelievers think that we think that we're self-righteous and that we have it all together. Oh, you just think you're so great because you go to church. You're something special. No, it's quite the opposite. It's because we know that we're not, that we gather and we worship the Lord because he has given something that we don't deserve. So why don't you come and join hands with other people who don't deserve the blessing of, of salvation? You see, the perception of the world is, is different than what the reality is. So don't be afraid to own your own sinfulness. Be willing to say, I was wrong. Please forgive me for my actions. So don't be afraid to proclaim your testimony. Appeal for your rights. Own your own sinfulness. And fourth, don't be afraid to trust God's providence. Now, what does that mean? See, God told Paul that, Paul that he would face opposition and suffer when he went to Jerusalem, but Paul didn't know exactly what that meant, and he was ready, as ready as he could be for all of that, but sometimes you have to be shrewd, and at other times, the Holy Spirit will guide you through, through his word, bringing scripture to your, your, your remembrance. Let's just think, first of all, about Paul's shrewdness. When Jesus sends out his disciples, this is what he says to them, Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. We get that. We're sheep. And those that are unbelievers oftentimes can be like wolves. So he says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I don't think you've ever heard a pastor call you a snake before. You're supposed to be snakes. Snakes for the Lord. That's probably not a good meme. It probably wouldn't go over well on Facebook. But this is what he's calling you to. What is he saying here? Being wise as a serpent here. In other words, to be thoughtful, to be wise, to be skillful, to be shrewd, but at the same time, to be people of integrity. And too often, because we believe in the sovereignty of God, friends, we can be guilty of checking our minds at the door, simply believing that God will just work it all out. He's sovereign. But God works through means. And that means he works through us, and he calls us to use our brains. He calls us to use our skills. He calls us to be wise. To be shrewd is to correctly discern the character and the intentions and the motives of other people. It doesn't overlook or fail to appreciate facts or events. It has a clear picture of what is going on, how things work, and what can be done. So it's able to, to look at a situation and, and be able to assess what's going on and know what needs to take place. 
but it is not a sinful characteristic. A word like guile describes someone who's willing to use manipulation and all sorts of things to, to get their way. Shrewdness is not necessarily sinful. It's the application of wisdom. It's the, it's the skill of using the tools that God has given you to assess the situation and to do something that's going to help in that particular uh, context. And in the last sentence, what we have here, uh, after his encounter with the high priest, Paul realizes what he could say in that moment. We're told he perceives that the Jewish council is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. And this is where his shrewdness kicks in because he knows now he can say something that is at the heart of the gospel that will cause a division and will win one side over potentially into his favor and turn another side even further against him, but he'll end up winning the day. So he cried out to the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. In other words, all you Pharisees, Pharisees out there, I am one of you. And my roots go back to the Pharisees. And there's a huge distinction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I don't know if you knew this. The Pharisees are certainly about the word, about the law. And what we find here, even in the context, exp explanation for um, Theophilus, who's a Greek here, Luke adds in some details that help, under help us understand what's taking place. But this is what he says. Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, of, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Well, the Pharisees then have to unite with him. He's a Pharisee, he's one of us, and he believes in the resurrection. Now, what he thought would happen did happen. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are divided and arguing amongst themselves. Now, because... This is happening because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. By the way, the resurrection that's being talked about here is not the resurrection of Jesus, but it's the resurrection of God's people when the Messiah returns. Sadducees didn't believe in that. They didn't believe in angels, right? They didn't believe um, in, in the spirit, and they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. But the Pharisees not only believed in the resurrection, but also in angels and the spirit, and for them, the resurrection was their ultimate hope. And so what do we find next? We find the Pharisees now defending Paul and saying, you know what? Maybe he got this from an angel. Maybe what he's saying is true. We find nothing wrong in this man. And as a result, the shouting turns to violence. And Lysias has to intervene once again and rescue Paul and have him sent back to the barracks. Friends, God calls us to be shrewd. And what we have here is Paul assessing the situation, knowing what to say, and what's actually going to help his cause in that moment. That's the first part, shrewdness. But I think on a practical level for us, more often than not, it's dependence on the Lord. And I think you've, you've probably experienced this before. There are some situations and circumstances that we just cannot be prepared for. As Peter mentions, we should always be ready, right? But there are times when we find ourselves in situations or having conversations that seem overwhelming to us. 
And in those times, God will often bring things to our remembrance. He'll remind you of a passage. And you're like, I don't know how I remembered that verse of Scripture. I don't know where that came from. You ever experienced that before? You're having a talk with someone, you're like, I haven't been dwelling on this, I haven't been meditating on it, but all of a sudden, in this conversation, boom, here comes this truth. Sometimes he'll bring an illustration to our minds. It brings clarity to whatever is being talked about. Sometimes he'll help you discern what is actually happening in the situation. He'll give you insight maybe into what the person's heart is really trying to say or seeking to find out. These are all things that God gives us in the moment. So we're dependent on him. Now, we are, we are at both on one side to be ready but at the same time, on the other side, things are going to happen. We're going to feel like, as much as I was ready, I'm not ready. And God still will open up doors and help us in those times of struggle. This is, this is the natural fruit of the Holy Spirit living and active in us, right? I have no idea where these words came from, where this verse came from, where this illustration came from. It must have come from the Lord. But it's also the natural fruit, friends, of the steady diet and practice of placing our noses in God's word. Because every time we do that, we're adding to the reservoir of what the Holy Spirit uses to help us as we live our lives for his glory. So four things. Don't be afraid to proclaim your testimony. Don't be afraid to appeal for your rights. Don't be afraid to own your your own sinfulness. Don't be afraid to trust God's providence. When we say don't be afraid, that's another way of saying be courageous in these arenas. And there are going to be times when you're in a situation you don't know what to say. And in those times, lean on the Lord for help. Let's bring this now to a close. Although Paul's demonstrated a Christ-like courage for the gospel in the face of opposition, he is nonetheless encouraged by the Lord himself. Acts 23, verse 11, again, we close with this. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, I don't know, I read that, and I don't know whether to be encouraged or discouraged. <laughs> You mean what I went through in Jerusalem, I'm going to have to go through again in Rome? Which lets you know that Paul was already being courageous when he's in Jerusalem. Courageous people need to be encouraged. Courageous people need to know some things to help them continue to be courageous. And in this verse, there's four things just briefly to end with here that I think will help us walk out with greater strength and awareness and, and help for what the Lord has for us. First of all, Jesus knows you. See, he comes to Paul in a time when he knows he needs to come. He knows Paul's situation. He knows what he's been through. He knows what's going on in his heart. And he knows that of us. He knows what you're facing. He knows the struggles that are before you. He knows you. And you can be sure that you are never outside of his gaze. Secondly, it says there in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him, right? Jesus is with you. 
Don't you just love that part? The Lord stood by Paul. If you remember earlier, when Paul was in Corinth, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision saying, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. But now that he's in Jerusalem, he says, I am with you, but you're going to endure suffering. (laughs) But he's with you. He's with you. And in Paul's final letter, his second letter to Timothy, he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Throughout his ministry, Paul was aware that the Lord was with him, but he needed to be reminded of that truth. So friends, be encouraged because the Lord is with you. We're told in Hebrews, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Third, not only is Jesus, does Jesus know you, he's with you, but he is for you. Do you notice the, the exhortation he gives here? He exhorts Paul to take courage, to not be afraid, to take heart, he says in John uh, 16, Take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what he says to his disciples. He exhorts him, but he also commends Paul and his ministry in Jerusalem. He says, you have testified about me in Jerusalem. It's like saying, well done, Paul. You've done a great job in Jerusalem. We're going to Rome next. But you've done a great job in Jerusalem. He's for you. He wants you to succeed. He he loves to see you um, obeying his will and following his instructions. And fourth, Jesus is not finished with you. And that's why we see he's not just ministering in Jerusalem. It doesn't end there. He's still going to go to Rome. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In Paul's case, it would be more suffering, more encounters with rulers and leaders, and more times for making a defense. Sounds like fun times ahead, doesn't it? But it's all part of God's providence. And friends, if you're still breathing, you're a child of God, Jesus is not finished with you. You might feel like you don't have much to offer, but he's not done. So be encouraged and keep pressing on. We're called to be courageous people. Not because we stir up our own courage, but because we are fueled by the one who is our Savior, who is our Master. and He he drives us through his word, by his Holy Spirit, to face whatever is before us and to do it for his glory. So friends, be encouraged this morning. Lord, help us today. As we've taken time to look at this incredible account of your faithful apostle. Lord, who we realize was not sinless. And yet, Lord, he shows for us the kind of things that he had to go through, the suffering he had to endure, just people wondering who he was and what was driving him. He was willing to stand up and and proclaim not only his story, but the gospel. He understood he could appeal to his rights as a citizen. Lord, he he was aware of his own sinfulness and was quick to catch himself when he was sinful. 
Lord, we, we just, we, we need strength in this world, Lord. It's so easy to be discouraged and to, to, to feel helpless. And yet, Lord, you want to come and you want your will to be done. And yet, Lord, you want us to tr trust you and to lean into you to find our strength and our courage. So, Lord, allow us not only as individuals, but as a church to see the wonderful call that you've given us. It may not be going into Jerusalem or Rome. It may not be, you know, being chased by mobs or being laid out to be flogged or even being beaten in the face. It may be far more subtle than that. But Lord, you've called us to, to be confident and to be bold in the face of danger, in the face of trials, in the face of disease, in the face of difficulty, Lord. Help us, Lord, to, to embrace, Lord, this commitment, this heart that we see in Paul, that we see in you as you went to the cross, as you died in our place. Lord, help us not only to follow Paul's example, but Lord, to follow your example. And as Paul said, follow Jesus, but follow my example. And so, Lord, we follow both in the right order. Lord. We realize that we are sinful creatures needing your help, needing encouragement. Lord, today there may be some people here that are just struggling with what they're going through. We ask, Lord, that you give them perspective and insight and wisdom that only comes from you, your precious holy name. Amen.